Just before we start, this episode is about relationships and sex. And so naturally we talk about adult subjects. You might feel that some of our conversation is not really suitable for children. So you might want to listen out of earshot of those younger ears. On with the show. Hi Dad. Hi Celine. Did you know that you and I are about the same age if you count time living in the world? What do you mean? Well, as you know, I left a high control religious group around the time you were born. So you're in your 20s then? (laughs) Well, maybe in my head. The thing is though, because I had all of my beliefs about morals, science, politics, religion, philosophy provided for me, I spent the last 25 years trying to work out what I should think about a whole bunch of stuff and work out what's going on. No one knows what's going on, Dad. (laughs) Well, I think it's about time we did. What Should I Think About is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful thing we call the world. Hello and welcome to the What Should I Think About podcast. I'm Celine, And I'm Stephen. Uh, so today on the What Should I Think About podcast, we've got a really special guest. It's Gillian Adams. Uh, Jill is an ex-Jehovah's Witness activist and has her own YouTube channel called The Fig Leaf. Uh, Jill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. appreciate you inviting me on. Great. It's great to have you. Uh, So today we really want to talk about the subject of sexuality and gender roles, uh, both in the Jehovah's Witnesses um, and then navigating that when you leave, which I guess is the focus of your channel, really. Um, But before we do that, would it be possible for you to give us just a bit of a background about yourself and why you started the channel, why you think that's an important subject? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been part of the ex-Jehovah's Witness community for some years. I started out supporting the UK Facebook group and an awful lot of the problems that were coming through from people did revolve around sex. So I was also involved in some more private Facebook groups and other online groups. um, And my husband and I were coming across people who had all sorts of issues from. um, uh, So when, when many people leave, they seem to feel that they have to go and try everything. They seem to feel that the world is one big orgy and, and maybe don't always feel comfortable with what they're being asked to do. Sometimes they get into a relationship where they're fairly easily manipulated because they don't know how to detect red flags or enforce boundaries. Uh, Some people I know succumb to a porn addiction um, and that left them feeling quite um, isolated and low in self-esteem. And it's just about balance, which is something we were never taught as witnesses. We were taught, just don't do it. Don't do any of it. Mm. Then you'll be fine. Just don't Mm. do it. And it's how when you come out the other side, and you have all the options in the world available to you, what can, should you do? What would be healthy for you to do? And how do you figure out what you like, who you are, how you can enforce your boundaries, and how you can do whatever you want now um, within the realms of um, informed consent and mindfulness of yourself and your partner's psychological and physical safety? Mm. Oh, so there's loads there for us to... Uh to unpack there's so much we want to ask you about um so could you give us a bit of a an overview of how relationships work within jehovah's witnesses bearing in mind that not everybody who listens to this podcast have been jehovah's witnesses could you give us a bit of a uh, an overview of, of what that world is like please so I'm going to go from the perspective of somebody who's raised a Jehovah's Witness because that takes yeah. you through your formative years and your adolescence and you form your perceptions of gender roles throughout that process. Much of it will apply to converts as well, but let's go with born-ins. So from a very, very early age, you are told to dress modestly. And by modestly, we mean covering sort of most parts of your body. Everybody will have a say in this. So if they feel that um, a boy is wearing a too bright suit, if they feel that a, a girl is wearing a too short skirt, from whatever age, they will be able to approach your parents or approach you and tell you that they didn't agree with whatever it was you were wearing, and that you need to go and fix that. So you are kind of gently herded into this um, very narrow perception of how you present yourself your whole life. You are expected to sit very still in the meetings. I recall my mother telling me off 
for my twin daughters who were babies flashing their pants at a meeting because they were babies and they were playing around. So <laughs> from that kind of early age, you're, you're hemmed into this modesty concept. As you grow older, you start to realise that there are very firm gender roles. So boys are allowed to go on the platform and give talks and they're given lots of special attention by the circuit overseer. Girls are pretty much only good for learning homemaking skills or doing talks where they're talking to each other um, rather than teaching the congregation. It's kind of a, a get around it thing so that they can still speak but without teaching anybody. In fact, um, funny story, I'm sure you guys know about this, but uh, the wording of one song was even changed from guard your heart to we guard our hearts because there was a fear that women would be singing instructions to neighboring men so <laughs> so you're... yeah i remember that i do i remember hearing about that i don't know how long ago it was but it uh, yeah i have got some consciousness of that yeah yeah. <laughs> so, so throughout that, um, boys then uh, presumably, without being a boy, boys internalise this leadership and this kind of um, exceptionalism for themselves, and girls internalise this subjection and what their purpose and role is, and then that feeds into the adolescent years where you would like to get to know somebody. They, the, the literature usually says that you shouldn't get married before the end of the bloom of youth. I think is the phrase they use. Um, which means somewhere around your sort of late teens, early 20s from what's been described. But realistically, you're not allowed to do anything sexual whatsoever. And that even means to yourself until you get married. In fact, after you get married, you're not supposed to do it to yourself anyway. But you're allowed no sexual release whatsoever until you get married which means that um, a lot of the mental energy of young people is spent in attracting what Jehovah's Witnesses somewhat archaically call a mate. Mm. So you would find yourself going to uh, conventions, going to other meetings. You've always got your eye on, on the opposite sex in the congregation or at the convention, strutting around in your best outfits, trying to attract somebody. Uh, and it just takes up a huge amount of people's time. But that's normal for teenagers to approach things that way. What isn't normal is the way that you are looked upon if you speak to too many members of the opposite sex. I was told off once for working with too many young men on the ministry when I was a regular pioneer, which means I did 70 hours a month ministry. Um, and they were just helping me out with the hours because it was very, very challenging to do that. I'm sure some of them had ulterior motives, but on the whole, they were just being friends. And I was told off for spending too much time with them. I've heard of others being told off for being seen speaking to too many members of the opposite sex. So whilst they say that they take marriage very seriously, and it's supposed to, in theory, according to doctrine, last literally eternity. So when you get married, you're expected to live with this person for ever and ever and ever. And I mean billions of years while stars die and mountains form. You are with this one individual. You are barely allowed to get to know. <laughs> you are barely allowed to get to know that person or any alternative people because of these uh, cultural restrictions on you associating with them. You have to have a chaperone if you're dating. And if you're dating, it's taken very seriously, almost like an engagement. An engagement is taken so seriously that it's almost like a marriage. So from the moment you start talking to somebody, you are being funneled into this situation where you're about to marry somebody very young that you barely know. Yeah, we've said before, it feels like pride and prejudice in the in the witnesses, like the way that, you know, the conversations are had and yeah like you said still having to have chaperones and yet yeah, the, the 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 fact that the whole point is well you must be with an intention to be getting married um there is no no dating for the sake of dating hmm. exactly so were you uh i think you were raised as a witness uh jill is that right that's right yes so so like me so we're, we're kind of um both experience that and I, I certainly recognize a lot of what you're saying there all of what you're saying actually obviously uh, what I can from a, a male perspective um yeah I mean you got me thinking there going on the ministry was like actually quite a 
sort of slightly cheats way of um, of kind of dating but not dating. So it was a, a the only kind of legitimate way you could spend time with a member of the opposite sex um, mm-hmm. that you kind of might be interested in without it being seen as, um, yeah, a date as such. And it was because you were, obviously you tried to spend as much time walking from house to house and uh, doing your calls that were like a long way apart. So you could have chance to talk to this person as you're walking from one call to another. It, it Yeah, it was really was. Um, I remember that really clearly. For me, that was actually a very exciting thing to be able to do because that was literally the only time that you could really have that um, kind of one-to-one contact with somebody. Yeah, that's really interesting. Mm. So what what does it feel like from a woman's perspective to – so you talked about internalizing. So could you explain a little bit about what that means? So you're internalizing all this stuff. Um, Could you explain what that feels like uh, for somebody like yourself? Well, you don't really notice it happening. I think it's a little bit of the frog in boiling water. You, you're not aware of the differences between either yourself and uh, the opposite sex or between yourself and, um, I, I, hes- I hesitate to say the world worldly people, but that's what Jehovah's Witnesses call non-Jehovah's Witnesses. So you don't know the difference in the lifestyle that you could have had. All you kind of see is that, for instance, when um, my brother was baptised, um, my mum had to defer to him for the family Bible study. So he was maybe 14 or so, and he suddenly became the spiritual head of the household. And we all could have had to do what my little brother said. He never abused the privilege. And, you know, he's an absolutely wonderful, mature and kind person. But it's a very strange situation. See your mother in her 40s, perfectly competent woman, having to devolve her authority to one of her children just because they happen to be a man. I know that uh, men who grew up as witnesses also experience huge challenges and pressure to become elders and ministerial servants. So I'm never depreciating that experience that Mm. they've gone through. I I dearly love my XJW um, former brothers, brothers, whatever we might say. Um, But uh, I can only speak from the experience of uh, the Mm. female perspective, which is quite unique and not unique to Jehovah's Witnesses. I think other evangelical groups would experience it. Possibly some other high control groups, maybe Mormons, maybe other other groups would experience something fairly similar. Um, But there is a huge distinction between the genders and uh, between the sexes. Sorry, not the genders. And you're not allowed to form close friendships. So. As much as dating is very difficult and you have to find, as you said, these cheats ways around it just to get to know somebody before you pitch into a relationship, you also don't form these kind of natural friendships without this uh, spectre of dating over the top of it. Or should they start dating, would your friendship then be affected? Because it's it's not a natural thing to integrate as men and women as witnesses. In terms of, so you've yeah t- talked about the way the witnesses um, see those relationships post uh, leaving for you. Was that something that you were actively trying to undo in your brain, or was it like one point you realised you're like, why am I, you know, having to do these things or behave in these ways? Like, did did, did that kind of start to crumble when you left? I think one of the things that I do see, maybe not with myself, I probably haven't deconstructed my own thoughts enough to be able to to give that. But I do definitely observe people tend to go one way or the other. They either consider someone looking in their direction to be tantamount to an engagement and Mm -hmm. are unable to separate any kind of uh, discourse or, or closeness from having some kind of purpose at the end of it unable just to live in the moment and just to enjoy somebody's time without there having to be some grand purpose behind it or they become completely commitment phobic and afraid of getting into that kind of situation because anybody who's been there knows that you are just railroaded into an eternity with this individual um I think for myself, I've I've struggled with, um, say, male authority at work. 
Um, <laughs> I will do practically the opposite of what anybody tells me to do. And my husband absolutely attests to that fact. Um, <laughs> particularly somebody wearing a suit will never get me to do what they want me to do, um, which is just uh, it's a fear response more than anything. I was actually speaking to a, a fellow survivor of domestic abuse the other day, and she, before I'd said anything, said exactly the same thing that she would be the opposite of what people tell her to do because she's afraid of going back to that place. Yeah, I, I, I definitely can understand that. Um, so there's a couple of points you've touched on, which I, I'd like to, to go into a little bit more. Um, so one of this is the the area of the principle of headship. Um, so you've touched upon that and, and the experience that you had, even with your brother, um, sort of being the, the little man of the house when um, when spiritual things were being talked about if you like and um, so for, again for those who don't know what is this principle of hedging where does this come from how, how do jehovah's witnesses uh, justify this so i forget which scriptures it comes from um that wasn't part of my research before today but it, it definitely is to some extent uh, there's a scripture that says uh, the head of every um, Christ is the head of every man. The head of every um, woman is is the man. So it's supposed to go in that order: the woman, the man, the and then Christ, and then the children kind of filter in somewhere around all of that. Um, <laughs> and um, I think that one of the arguments that witnesses have is that they don't actually say that all women are subject to all men. There's, what they're saying is that the one individual wife is subject to her husband and daughters subject to their father. Mm. But what happens in practice is that only men can be elders, only men can be ministerial servants, um, only men can be circuit overseers, only men can be members of the governing body. Um, and I, I recall hearing um, a, a lovely XJW chap talking about his own experiences and saying that it was always pressure to go up the next rung to progress in a congregation and thinking, well, at least they wanted to hear from you. At least they wanted to hear what you had to say. We just had to bring cakes yeah. along to quick build and mind our own Mm. yeah absolutely yeah we've said that before with um it's always like you get to make cake and you can you know bring people around a a lunch if they're feeling unwell or something you know you can do those things but Mm -hmm. past that point yeah what you actually have to say is quite mute (laughs) um exactly and as a woman who tends to have a lot to say that was frustrating (laughs) yeah definitely (laughs) So uh, Jehovah's Witnesses' view of sex, um, so how would you describe that? What 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 would you, because uh, obviously you've talked about some of the detail in terms of what you can and can't do, but what's what's the message that's coming through to everybody about sex from the, from the organisation, really? So there's a lot of, I think you could probably describe it as dog whistling, really, in the way that they describe things. So, um, for instance, when you talk about homosexuality, they will say that they hate the sin, but not the sinner and um, that anybody can change and that um, all you have to do is have control of your your sort of mental faculties. I think they describe it and you'll be fine. But what that actually translates to is um, a group of people who are expected to die horrifyingly in um, in fireballs Armageddon. Because any practicing gay people, that that is the fate that witnesses believe awaits them. And the alternative is to live an extremely lonely life where you can never connect with anybody on a romantic basis. So there's that. Um, I did look up uh, trans issues as well before we spoke and noted that there was almost nothing mentioned about it, apart from a small flurry in the late 70s, early 80s, where they described it um, as psychological disturbance um, and the gender reassignment. uh, They didn't call it that. They used outdated terms. The gender reassignment doesn't help anyway with the psychological disturbance, so don't bother having it. But only a few small snippets in the late 70s and 80s and nothing since then. When you talk about um, sex outside of marriage, um, they're very clear that they think that fornicators and adulterers uh, will, will not inherit the kingdom of God, they say. 
And what that means, again, it, it sounds all terribly um, benign that you just stay outside of the kingdom of God. Fine. No, it means you're going to die in fireballs very, very shortly. This is all the kind of dog whistle surrounding it. So you're also taught that worldly people are out there having this permanent drug riddled orgy. Um, and you're taught that often from the pictures. So a lot of the illustrations will always show worldly people in this propagandized negative light um, or just doing fairly basic things. Uh, boys and girls, uh, the boy with his arm around the girl or the girl trying to speak to the boy. Or there was a recent video where a young man was approached by a pretty girl who wanted him to help with her homework. And he was told to push that as far away as he possibly could. And he had to run away and talk to a more uh, senior spiritual advisor to get help to avoid helping this girl with her homework. And so it's it's subtle dog whistles that become part of the fabric of your perception of yourself, others in the congregation, worldly people. And then to the extent that they at one point were very um, critical of even cishet um, behavior within a marriage. So um, things like oral sex, anal sex was thought to be so um, against God's nature that it was a cause for some people to be disfellowshipped, unfortunately, back in the day. And they've now kind of quietened the tone on that and said that it's rather more up to you. But that doesn't shake the culture. And that doesn't mean that you end up with this kind of, you just end up with this puritanical um, perception within the congregation where a fellow sister could march up to me in the bathrooms of a convention back in 2016, the last one I ever went to, and tell me that I needed to pull the top of my top up, which wasn't really showing very much anyway. But where else in the world do you find people feeling the need to march up to people and tell them they should adjust their clothing? Yeah. 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 I think and I think that stays with you for a while like, it takes time to unlearn doesn't it because like even sometimes um with uh with mum she was like get, talking about getting these like inserts you can get that you put inside your top so if something's like low you could put an insert in and then I was like I was like mum you look lovely without that and like that's just like a modesty bib get down with the modesty bib <laughs> and like we just make jokes about that now but it's like you know she was like oh it's just like you know jw training kicking in you know um uh, yeah it takes time to sort of notice it and 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 you know obviously ultimately it's choices as well if you want to wear one of those that's like fine it's a choice and that's cool it's just if if it's because you feel that you have to that it gets into muddy territory absolutely and i just have to shout out my lovely mother-in-law and her preoccupation with underslips trudy and your love of <laughs> oh, love yeah, of underslips if you're listening <laughs> <laughs> I've just um so you were talking about that before Celine the um the, the modesty bib thing but um yeah so uh, you reminded me with underslip so that um we used to call that a camisole apparently I think that was what they used to call it mm. um so I actually remember that uh conversation in our house um oh, yeah. yeah I mean I suppose um again casting my mind back you're making me think about my uh my sort of youth the bloom of youth. I, I use that phrase mm-hmm. of the day to one of our other guests. It was kind of hilarious, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, obviously neither of us are sort of, um, you know, counsellors or, or so on, but um, but from a, from a sort of psychological perspective, um, I, I worry that it has a kind of damaging effect on, on your sense of self because you've got this, these feelings, these natural um feelings it's it's absolutely normal for young people to have those feelings of attraction and so on and sure you know there'll be the the cursory mention of that in the young people ask book that's quite natural but um but a lot of the things that come along with that you're made to feel that it's really wrong and so i think it it creates a very unhealthy relationship with your own body and your own sense of your own sexuality and who you are, um, and I, I'm not sure how how you ever get over that in many respects. You know, I think it's a really difficult thing to get over. It takes a long time 
to get over those feelings about you know what you think towards sex and relationships and so on I, I don't know whether that makes any sense to you Jill but I, I think it's mm-hmm. quite it's more damaging than perhaps we many people would realize Oh, a million percent, which is the main reason that I started that channel. Um, mm. Unfortunately, I'm very, very busy with my family and job yeah. and degree is struggling to do too many videos, but working on it um, because there is that need. Uh, things like one of the most pernicious uh, teachings of the Jehovah's Witnesses and many other similar religions is how your value is pinned to your virginity as well. And uh, should you lose, <laughs> how you can lose a social construct, but should you lose this virginity thing, then um, you, you literally go down in value. Um, I've heard people refer to, I lost my virginity before I got married, and I heard myself referred to as used good. Nobody would want you. And why anybody should be made to feel that way when they were acting on perfectly natural desires And it leads people to behave in ways that aren't particularly psychologically or physically safe as well. Because just going back to what we said at the beginning, you're just told no balance, just don't do it. You have no idea about sexual safety. You have no idea about being cornered into things that you don't really want to do. You have no idea about consent. Consent. When I I did a video um, a couple of months ago and I tried to look up consent in JW.org, and it didn't exist. I mean, well, it didn't exist. Apart from, I think we were talking about data. There was some consent for data article. <laughs> the word consent barely came up. Well, so if you're not going to do things exactly as they've said, which is unnatural, difficult, and life is more complicated than that, and why should yeah. you anyway, um, then you're given no instructions on how to do it safely. And I think that can carry on after you've left the organisation. But just going on to your point about how it, it stays with us for a really long time, I would advise anybody to please get professional counselling if you can. We do underestimate the impact it has on us. Very often people will tell me they're fine, they don't need any XJW support. They'll come back to me a year, maybe later, and say, I'm in pieces, I need help. I need to be connected to the groups. So if you can afford it and you can access it, I'd really recommend um, counselling or other trauma therapy. Uh, But I know that's not acceptable to everybody. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe. It's just a click or a tap, but it means that the show gets recognised as something of potential value and interest to others. And it's the main way that we know people care about what we're doing. So if you've not already done so, please click subscribe or follow on whatever podcast app you're using. Thank you. And on with the show. Uh, Obviously you spoke about um, consent there and, and, you know, that's really important. So I'm wondering if people, if with the witnesses, if it's like discussed with the whole just because you're married doesn't mean that you now have to or it's owed to anybody but I'm is there a culture of that within the witnesses that once you're married it's kind of like an expectation or it's um purportedly this is another dog whistle kind of thing in the magazines it will say that you should be mindful of your wife's delicacies or sensitivities she's the weaker vessel you mindful of certain times of the month and if she doesn't want mm-hmm. to then you know um, but then it will also say that you need to be giving of yourselves freely to each other that your body belongs to your spouse so there's a lot of mixed messaging where people can very easily mm-hmm. grip onto one statement and say, oh no look it's wholesome it's fine and then other mm-hmm. statements can't counteract it and almost give it this dangerous veneer of acceptability over what can be quite dangerous teachings. And then within the culture of the organisation, I know from my own experience and from many others, there's next to no interest in any kind of domestic abuse or spousal violence or manipulation. Mm-hmm. Unless your spouse puts you in hospital, they really would rather you just go away quietly mm-hmm. and just smile yeah. sweetly at the meetings. Mm. yeah Yeah, it's interesting i remember the the phrase marital due um Mm. so that was um both part parties had to fulfill their marital due 
which basically, you know, you can interpret that obviously in, in lots of different ways, um, but it is open to um, quite some quite dangerous um, interpretations, I, w- I would suggest. I, I also remember a public talk once where the elder said, I, I can't, obviously I can't remember the exact words, it's a very long time ago, but to paraphrase, um, speaking to, I mean, it was a it was a talk about marriage. So he talked to the men and then he talked to the women. And when he was talking to the women, he said something like, you know, are you fulfilling your marital due? You know, um, otherwise you might be responsible for the marriage bed being defiled. So essentially he was, <laughs> he was saying, if you're not keeping your husband satisfied and he goes off somewhere else, then that's your fault. Um, which even at the time, I um, it was totally in. I thought that sounded a bit off. Let's put it that. Way. Let's put it that way. Um, so yes. Um, so I, I think you touched on this in your opening um, words, really, Jill. But um, so you've had this culture steeped in in us. We've had this culture steeped in us as we're growing up. Um, and that goes for anybody that's born in. Certainly, and yes, to some degree, others who come in. And then if you, if and when you leave, so when we leave this culture, um, it it's kind of the key to what we talk about on this podcast, which is, you know, what should I think about this now? You know, what, what do I think about this situation? And um, I guess there's a sense of freedom, of liberation potentially, but also there's some risks associated with it. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that, perhaps expand upon some of what you've already said, the the, uh, the the wonderful freedom you've got, but also some of the risks and how you navigate all these opportunities that, that you now have. Have you got any kind of way of thinking about that? Yeah, yeah. That's, again, that's another reason that I started up the channel because I felt that yeah. people sometimes seem to feel compelled to behave like a kid in a sweet shop when they leave. And I think part mm-hmm. of that is how we're taught that non-witnesses, uh, worldly people, are. We're told that that's what they're all doing. Right. If you want to leave, then to feel accepted by these new peers, I do think some people right. feel a pressure to to do that because they think it's it's all going on out there and pe- people are having so much more fun out there than they actually are. Um, <laughs> 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 and I think... Okay. <laughs> Another thing that um, I think they've deliberately um, cultivated with Jehovah's Witnesses is this shame and forgiveness cycle. So you're constantly left feeling ashamed for your own thoughts, even if you don't act on your thoughts. If you're sat in the Kingdom Hall looking at um, Sister So and So's chest, then you should be deeply ashamed of those thoughts, and you know, and and apologize to Jehovah. It's like all your thoughts are actually laid bare. They're out there. You don't have to do it. You don't have to say it out loud. Jehovah knows everything you've been thinking. And apparently he spends an inordinate amount of time judging what you think of um, using the the uh, hormones and the you know sexual drive that apparently Jehovah gave you. So <laughs> gives yeah. it to you and then has yeah. a problem with you sitting there using it. Um But I do think that that's quite a deliberate attempt to force this shame and forgiveness cycle. So you're constantly reinforcing your dependence on the organisation to get forgiveness for something that you never really needed to be sorry for in the first place. Um, So what I would love to see with people leaving um, is more people taking stock of themselves, figuring out who they are, what they like, what they really want to do, and not kind of instantly leaping into this kind of false um wild world that so many seem to think is out there now that's not to say that i'm in any way judging anybody who does want to get out there and and sleep with half the town and you know get tattoos head to toe and do whatever they want to do that is absolutely fine as long as you've really considered that that is actually who you are and what you want to do and again it comes back to being mindful of your own and your partner's psychological safety and physical safety making sure you're aware of good sexual health practices making sure you're aware of consent and if um, you're somebody who's maybe stepping into the BDSM community as well making sure that you're aware of aftercare and the psychological safety of people there as well Um, not just sort of reading about some fun things on the internet and going to try it on somebody because that's just not how it works so stepping back 
maybe taking a bit of time to think about who you are, what you want genuinely, um, and maybe even getting some counselling on the subject would be a really, really mm. good start. But at the very least, just realising that having a world of opportunities out in front of you doesn't mean you have to do anything. And then when you do go and do things, have a marvellous time and be safe. Yeah, that's really, really sounds like really good advice to me. Um, and it reminds, in a strange way, um, it reminds me of uh, another conversation we had a few weeks ago um, with Rob. Uh, well, I've mentioned this before on, on other chats, but Rob Crompton, he's, a, you know, he's, he's been uh, left to witnesses many, many years. He's retired now, so he's, you know, he's, he's, he's obviously able to look back on his life. But he, he warns against kind of letting the organization frame your understanding of things. And I think you made that point there. So if you assume that, yes, actually the world is this thing, uh, but you're only assuming it based on what you've been told about it by Jehovah's Witnesses, then that could um, skew your opinion about what you need to do in order to be part of that community. So, yeah, I think just giving yourself some time to understand, yes, what you want personally and and actually what the world is like, um, at least to some degree, and, and um, rather than being it being framed by the witnesses. So yeah, that's that's very that's very interesting. Sort of a big question, so it might it'll uh, up to you how you feel comfy you were talking about this one. But it's just I know in your sort of intro video on YouTube, you said you yourself had to um, face a judicial committee. Um, what do you like? They're obviously really damaging, and they're often used as a as a tool against people that yeah um have sex outside of marriage and uh, it seems like especially against women um in that situation uh what do you think as a society we should be doing about that like do we just you know is it you know the question of well people have freedom of belief and they're in this religion it's all sort of agreed between them or should there be more active involvement from society to stop that because it is it's damaging and um quite frankly i mean abusive to be forced to stand in front of a you know a, a line full of, full of men and be told uh you need to discuss your sexual activity i mean what do you think about that i'm so pleased that you got to that point about judicial committees mm-hmm. uh it's a really really important one because it's hanging over the head of every witness throughout their entire lives should they step out of line, they face a judicial committee. And even people who have never been in one know that it's not good news to go in that room. We we joke about being backroomed, don't we, as witnesses? Um, yeah. And that's just kind of a lighter version of, of a judicial. Um, for your viewers who aren't witnesses or had, had never have been, I'll just quickly explain what those are then. Um, mm, so judicial committees are formed when um, a member, a baptised member or a, a unbaptised publisher, so somebody who's made a formal engagement with the religion, has stepped out of line and has broken one of the more serious rules or maybe one of the less serious ones, but more regularly, or maybe one of the less serious ones and they just don't like you. And then you are forced to sit in the back room with three, it will always be men, always be three middle-aged men without fail and you are not normally allowed to have anybody else in there with you. Now just going back to Celine's specific question there, because they ask such explicit detail and really really inappropriate detail, we know of our our dear friend David Gracie don't we, who whose stepdaughter was forced to listen to five-hour recording of her own rape in a judicial committee And I can tell you, even without a recording, it feels like being re-traumatised when you're in that situation. I personally think that nobody under 18 should be allowed to be baptised and nobody under 18, therefore, should be allowed to sit in a judicial committee. Mm -hmm. I think that just about eliminates the issue because anybody over 18 would have to have uh, additional vulnerabilities, which of course are socially generated by the organisation itself. It's not the answer to all problems. Judicial committees actually should just be terminated. But from society's perspective and respecting faiths, I think a start would be um, making sure that nobody...
and the team can get baptised and nobody under 18 can sit in a judicial committee. I had my own when I was 17 and I had sex with my then fiancé. And they asked very, very intimate questions about what underwear you wore, what where you touched each other. Um, I'm using the third person because it's actually still slightly traumatic to talk about it. Um, but at 17, I completely alone with these three men that I've respected and looked up to and slightly feared my entire life. Um, my family were a divided household. We weren't related to anybody. So um, I was completely unprotected. I didn't have uncle so-and-so or, uh, you know, my brother-in-law in there or anything like that. I didn't know anybody. I was completely unprotected and asked very, very inappropriate questions. When it came to my sister, who um, also uh, met a, a serious partner, she ended up marrying him and she had had sex with him. She was 19 and called for a judicial. I wouldn't allow her to go into it alone. So it was a very, very rare instance. Um, I forced my way into the judicial committee. The elders looked perplexed and very unhappy with it. But there was something about my face that said that I wasn't going away. So they did actually allow me to sit in on it. And the questioning was fairly ordinary. The questioning was quite above, above the level. And I think that is because there was an outsider in the in the room, you know, sort of keeping things on track and keeping things safe, knowing the purpose I was in there for. But on the whole, you are just sat there completely alone with these three older men asking you really inappropriate questions. Yeah, there's um there's an irony to the fact of how inappropriate they're being in that they force, you know, people dating to have to have chaperones and yet they will you know like you said they'll have just those three elders and one person without any protection for themselves in a room for a judicial and they don't see an issue with that it's it's yeah it it, it's a sad irony to that (laughs) to what they're doing when you see the training videos for elders to carry out these judicials um i mean they're a bit weird and culty aren't they there's the um the famous video mm-hmm. with robbie yeah. being forced to come and see this woman's fish tank um, <laughs> trying to pin it all on her so they do these elders training videos anyway for how to mm-hmm. and they um they, they make it sound again quite reasonable they're very good at that the, the public facing mm. stuff, even some of the internal stuff, they make it sound quite reasonable. But throughout the world, in any country you go to, anybody you talk to, you will be hard pressed to find people who haven't had near identical inappropriate judicial committees who would probably argue they're looking for the proof. So if you were wearing sexy lingerie and they ask you about it, then it's premeditated. If you use contraception, it's premeditated. Um, so they would argue their questions are trying to find out whether you um, premeditated the situation or it was, as you know, sort of slipped and fell on each other. Um, but, uh, <laughs> um, but I just think it's interesting that there is that disparity between the training videos that you see and then what undoubtedly, undeniably happens literally worldwide with almost every person that you mm. speak to about a judicial yeah it's interesting i mean uh, i suppose again we should just um clarify for the for the listeners that are not xjw's um judicial committee isn't there to generally speaking isn't there to determine guilt or innocence that's already been decided <laughs> it's like one of those sort of <laughs> you know um science you're fiction guilty. films How guilty where, are yeah, you? yeah exactly so it, you're, you're already guilty really what this is is to determine whether the elders think that you are sorry for what you've done so it's about repentance really um and that that alludes to your point about um whether you what, what you're wearing and whether you use protection and so on because that would be seen as being premeditated therefore you can't be sorry yeah yeah absolutely and also just to note people might think why would you put yourself through it and it's because they are holding your entire family and social network hostage. So the outcome of a judicial yeah. committee can be disfellowshipping, which means that your own mother yeah. will cross the road if she sees you coming for the rest of your life, unless you go back into the organisation. So uh, social ostracism from your nearest and dearest is is what's at stake. So you go into that situation, putting yourself through anything they want to ask you for the sake of holding on to your family and your loved ones. Yeah. 
that's a very good point. Just in terms of obviously you've left now. So what was it that sort of led to you leaving? Was it loads of these things started stacking up and you started noticing them and, and you just couldn't anymore? Or was it more that you just didn't believe it anymore? What was it that, that meant you started leaving? I wish I had been one of those people who had these terribly clever doctrinal issues or who had just sussed out that it wasn't true um, through sheer logic and left. I, I wish I could say that. So ad- I admire people who did that. But it was getting disfellowshipped. <laughs> um, I, was in a, um, I was in an abusive marriage and um, I was absolutely miserable, not particularly physically abusive, although he did threaten to kill me a few times and seemed to mean it, um, but um, more psychologically and emotionally abusive, financially abusive as well. Um, and I was just miserable. Um, and then I met my now husband through a friend and uh, he had recently um, been separated from his wife as well. And uh, within two weeks, we had left and sort of run off together. Um, I never attended that judicial committee because another little nugget for your listeners is that when the husband cheats, the wife isn't allowed into his judicial committee. So she doesn't get to hear anything and the elders will only feed back um, snippets. They won't they won't tell you who he cheated on you with. They won't they won't even tell you if, you know, if he's if he's picked up something. They won't tell you anything like that because it's down to the husband to tell you. However, if the wife cheats, the husband gets to sit in on the whole entire process because of the headship arrangement and he's intended to restore you to spiritual health I think is the phrase used in the um, in the elders secret elders handbook shepherd the flock of god book available on the internet in pdf form regularly um, so I didn't attend my last one because I knew it was going to be three men um, and my ex-husband soon to be ex-husband just sat there quizzing me and I just couldn't face it so, yes, I was disfellowshipped and so was Richard. Um, and we spent a few years disfellowshipped, but we hadn't woken up fully. We just had huge issues with a lot of things, but we hadn't quite crystallised those thoughts into anything. It, it, in hindsight, it's just I can't believe we didn't put two and two together, but we didn't. Um, then we were reinstated on our second letter. And um, so with non-ex-witness listeners, you have to put in very groveling long letters about how terribly sorry you are. Sometimes they'll make you put in a few just to, I don't know, put you through it. Um, So um, on our second letter, we got back in. And then it was shortly after that, I went to visit a friend who was disfellowshipped or she dissociated herself, actually, which means she jumped rather than been pushed. Um, And I wasn't supposed to. So we're not supposed to speak to anybody disfellowshipped or disassociated, gets you in huge trouble. I'd parked around the corner. I'd parked behind a van so nobody could see my car. I ran over the road with my hood over my head so that nobody could see me going there if they went down that road. And then having my illicit cup of Earl Grey in my friend Rhea's living room told me that she joined the um, XJW support group on Facebook. And uh, she said, you do know they were members of the UN, don't you? And I didn't believe immediately, but my gut did. And the whole um, house of cards fell from then on. I went home and looked it up. I knew Rhea would never lie to me. Went home and looked it up. Turned out it was true. Turned out a whole bunch of other things were true. And spent the mandatory two years or so down the rabbit hole, getting angrier and angrier every day that I've been lied to for 30 plus years. And now, um, well, not now, for some time now, actually, um, been coming out the other side of that and just supporting other people who are in that same Mm. place to move on with their lives and to accept what they've lost and try and build what they can from the wreckage. That's very interesting. Um, actually, can I um, can I can I go back to um, well, a slightly different subject? Something I really want to talk about before we uh, we wrap up, which is from the um, I suppose the male perspective a little bit around this. So, um, thinking about headship and the way that men are conditioned to think about that headship, um, I think you touched on it already, but 
when when you leave as a man, um, if you've had thirty odd years of that, forty years, however old you are when you when you leave, um, what sort of effect do you think that can have on the the man? Even though he's left the organisation, even even though he doesn't believe it anymore, um, do you think there's some hangover there possibly from that that indoctrination? I think I would ask everybody to look inside themselves for the answer to that question. It does feel to me that sometimes yeah. uh, male XJWs could make more space for women. I know some do, and you know, huge appreciation to those who do make space yeah. for, for female XJWs. But rem- remember that our voices have been suppressed all our lives, and. If you disagree with us or you come with a different perspective, we're quite likely to clam up rather than defend our position because we're used to that male authority. We're not used to even having the option of debating and arguing back. Um, So I can't speak for people who were raised male as witnesses, but I can say that I would really appreciate it if they were all just to really um, honestly self-examine and make sure that they are really making space for us to grow and develop and blossom when we leave the organisation just as they want to. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. It's something we've talked about on this podcast before. Um, you know, your, as you said, your, your condition to think about leadership and headship and so on and as a as a young man um yeah I, I i would feel like it was my responsibility to shoulder a whole bunch of stuff so when i got married you know although sarah had a job my wife um i i would feel that it was my responsibility to make sure that we had enough money to pay the bills primarily um and yeah, so those those sort of old ideas, I think, can hang around for quite some time. Um, and yeah, I just think it's a really interesting thing to to do to look at yourself and think about it. You know, I've thought about it quite a lot. My wife, um, Sarah, is one of the most wonderful people you'll you'll ever meet. She's such a lovely person, um, but she's so she's not somebody that is naturally going to stand up and say, "Look, I don't agree with you there." Um, and I think that was a period that it took us quite some time actually to um, to to see ourselves as equals. Um, and now I do. I feel like it's so much more. Um, it's like a great weight lifted off my shoulders because um, I think that's something that's often forgotten about this headship principle: is it's bad for women, but it's also bad for men because it mm-hmm. it means that you know, the whole, the whole stuff is on your shoulders. Um, and for some men particularly, that's just not what they want. Um, so yeah, I, I just wanted to raise that because I think it's a, it's an important area. Yeah. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree. And my heart does go out to the different experiences that people have had. I can only speak of my own experience and just yeah, snippets yeah. what other people have told me of their experiences, but in no way am I ever diminishing anybody else's. And, you know, mm. natural leaders come in all genders. And absolutely. I think that's the thing to remember because also I see, you know, with love and respect to the former elders as well in the community, um, I think I see some of that behaviour sort of carry on outside as well. And and also amongst people who sort of flock to those um, leaders as well, who still sort of have that mindset that they need that that leadership as, as well. Um, but natural leaders are found in all genders. And I think we just need to make space for all voices and not even natural leaders, just all voices really need to be heard and need to practice being heard and practice piping up. Everybody's entitled to their voice. I might not agree with everybody's voice, but that's the fun of being on the outside, yeah. isn't it? We don't have to agree. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the areas where I'm finding it very interesting. Um, I've I've not really been involved in the XJW community um, for well, I left over 20 years ago and it really is only in the last couple of years that I've started to engage. Um, so I'm I'm kind of, um, I suppose, observing it and watching it from a slightly different perspective. And it's quite interesting to see how, yeah, because um, I'm all for peace. You know, I, I love peace. I, I find uh, a lot of the Twitter arguments very upsetting and uh, 
I, I understand the need for sometimes for, you know, standing your ground and so on. And again, I'm not criticizing anybody. I just personally um, just wish we could all get along, you know, but that isn't the way that life is, is it? That's not the way that the world is. So I well, appreciate the need for um, robust debate. But uh... <laughs> the funny thing is, that was actually how I was raised. Debate is almost love to me because my dad wasn't a witness. So it was only my mum who raised yeah. me as a and my dad worked in oil and he only kind of popped home about once a month but the engagement that my dad and I had was mostly debate we would pick a side and we wouldn't even care if we agreed with that side and we would just have these forceful energetic debates and then my dad would sometimes sometimes he'd win and I probably didn't realize um but sometimes he would sink to some kind of ad hominem and I would be like haha when you've got there I know I've won you've got nothing else to debate you with so to me debate is almost love <laughs> and I'm sure everybody feels that yeah, no, that's fair enough. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm learning. I think I'm I'm learning all that. Um, I remembered the thing I was going to say, by the way, which was um, oh, yeah. when 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 we first left, um, Sarah and I. I mean, um, this is definitely a subject for another uh, podcast, and I might even see if Sarah will talk about some of this stuff. But when we first left, you know, we started to do things like go to nightclubs. So I was in my uh, oh, what was I? 30s. Yeah, thirty odd. So yeah, we were going to nightclubs and things like that, and. Um, we were quite surprised that there was nobody having sex on the dance floor. You know, we thought that was what, um, that was what happened, you know. <laughs> There's an article that says that X many people got impregnated on the dance floor, isn't there? There, there is, yeah. and this is Mandela effect, but I'm certain that there is an article that makes that. Mm-hmm. Pregnant dance yeah, I remember, Maybe I remember there are articles about, yeah, about this happening, sex on the dance floor. Um, so yeah, so we were we were quite pleasantly surprised. It was actually quite an, an interesting and enjoyable evening. Um, Not disappointed. And we both came though. home. Say again. Not disappointed then. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I have to say it wasn't something I wanted to observe particularly. Uh, but uh, but yeah. So yeah. So I mean, obviously there are some um, risky situations that that happen in in all sorts of. Um, walks of life but it's yeah we were i i think um pleasantly surprised that so yeah there are nice people out in the world and um it's not the cesspit that um that we were we were led to believe the one thing that we haven't covered and i'll just say one yeah. sentence although it deserves Please. so much more um and we just haven't got time is sexual assault and that within the Jehovah's Witness organization, sorry to bring it down to a very serious tone, but just to say really quickly, if anybody's experienced that, please mm. seek counselling and please go to the police. Please, whatever you've told in the organisation, please go to the police. Yes, um, it's probably something that we, we ought to have a, uh, a full sort of, yeah. sort of yeah. podcast on itself. But um, mm-hmm. I, I was going to ask you about the... Um, the risks associated with an organization that we've spoken about this before where, you know, you have a kind of um, a king of, of his family um, and this subjection uh, situation, men in the uh, congregation who might be friends with, with this, this father. And, and so it feels to me like it's, you've got a perfect storm of, risk um for things to happen so whilst whilst jehovah's witnesses don't condone those sorts of actions they create the conditions that mean that these things happen i I don't know whether you you agree with that jill i think you've said it all on that i think that's absolutely the culture that you're working with and i'd also encourage please 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 to any professionals who get a hold of this and and hear it please look deeply into the culture with people that you're dealing with, especially mental health professionals or um, abuse survivor professionals. Um, Please look into the intricacies of the culture, because for all the reasons that you just mentioned, you will see some um, atypical responses and maybe even protection of abusers for for all those reasons. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, so Joe, we could we could probably do a, another hour, really. Um, so many more questions to to talk to you, but um, I found that really really interesting. Thank you so much mm-hmm. for 
for speaking to us today. It's been absolutely yeah. brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, good luck with your yeah, you. channel. I know you're busy. So you're doing a degree. Um, you're doing a master's, aren't you? Yes. Yes, a master's in global public health. Great. So good luck with that. And again, you'll have to come on another time and talk all about that because that sounds like a fascinating topic. So uh, we're into all that stuff here. I would love to. I've got a current bee in my bonnet about wanting to source data on the end times because I'm not at all convinced things are quite as terrible as uh, Watchtower would like to have us believe. Um, I've got a book back there called uh, The Better Angels of Our Nature by Steve Pinker talking about why the world is less violent but I, I would really mm. like to source some of that data and see what I can do about the end times mm, great okay well look forward to uh, more content and um, when you get time um, and uh, hopefully you'll come on again thank you very much for being on the podcast today Jill thank you thank you lovely to meet you what should I think about is an evil sheep production